This is Brian Evanson, author of Immobility, and you are listening to Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books that they read a long time ago. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The ancient book that we will be reading tonight is Perfume, The Story of a Murderer by Patrick Suskind. The very, very brief bio that I pulled from Wikipedia goes like this. Patrick Suskind is a German writer and screenwriter, best known for his internationally acclaimed novel Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. First published in 1985. That's like, that's like the entire bio. There you go. Now, I mentioned that we read this a long time ago. Do you, do you, I know you had it up on Goodreads recently. It was probably seven, eight years ago. Maybe a little longer. Yeah, I think we were actually working together, which has not been for a very, very long time. It's been like 10 years since we worked together, I think. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So, um, this is a the second throwback episode that we're doing, where we're officially reviewing something that is not recent and doing that thing that I don't understand. <laughs> so, here's what happens. I'm on uh, Facebook, and I see David Morell, and David Morell's like, oh, read this great review someone wrote of, <laughs> of, of First Blood, like a book that came out in like 1978 or something. <laughs> I'm like, why <laughs> the fuck is anybody reviewing something that's been out that long? So... Um, we, we thought we'd give it a shot. The first one we did was Night in the Lonesome October by um, Richard Lehman, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Um, this time we're going to read another book that, that both Rob and I have read that we really enjoyed. So here is the synopsis for Perfume. In the slums of 18th century France, the infant Jean-Baptiste Grenouille is born with one sublime gift, an absolute sense of smell. As a boy, he lives to decipher the odors of Paris and apprentices himself to a prominent perfumer who teaches him the ancient art of mixing precious oils and herbs. Bergrenouille's genius is such that he is not satisfied to stop there, and he becomes obsessed with capturing the smells of objects such as brass doorknobs and fresh-cut wood. Then one day he catches a hint of a scent that will drive him on an ever more terrifying quest to create the ultimate perfume, the scent of a beautiful young virgin. Told with a dazzling narrative brilliance, Perfume is a hauntingly powerful tale of murder and sensual depravity. Sensual depravity. Yeah. That's a nice little like capper for that for that um, uh, synopsis. You know, it's kind of weird because you can, you can read it two different ways, right? So being like deprived of your senses. Or it is yeah. uh, of the senses, that type of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is weird because there is no sense deprivation in this. Because dude, this guy's senses are, are on point, man. He's he can smell literally like everything. There's a brilliant passage that I wish I would have highlighted it in the book, where he's like something along the lines of, and I'm really paraphrasing here, but he's like, people are so simple. They're like, it smells like wood, but does it smell like old wood? Does it smell like cedar? Does it smell like wet wood? And, and like he lists yeah. like ten different things that should all have their own names. And yeah, like, but people just say it smells like wood. That's the thing about this book, man. Like, um, before we go into kind of the general description of what happens, or, or or you know the plot as we run through it, like we usually do, the thing that is so I don't want to say necessarily unique, but that that stands out about this book is the fact that like he he takes something that's so mundane and makes it the most fascinating thing you've ever read. Like I've never been more interested in hearing about the smell of things until like this person put it in a perspective that you never would have otherwise thought of it's it's spellbinding oh absolutely and, and it's um 
Yeah, I mean, he takes something that we take for, for granted by and large and, and breaks it down into like its most base components, and that's what I think makes it um, a real interesting read. Um, you know, no, no surprise here. There's perfume throughout the course of the book, as is indicated by the title and the the synopsis. But just like how they make perfume was really, really interesting and not something that you would think like, oh, I'm going to watch a documentary on how perfume is made, but it's delivered in such a way that it, it, that to me was fascinating all just by itself. Definitely. But I mean, there's so much more than that. There's, there's the, the psych, the psychology of, um, someone who's a killer. There's the whole, I, you know, there's the whole, just, um, the setting. I mean, it's set in what, um, 18th century France, right? Correct. Yep. 18th century France. So there's the whole period setting of of you're you know you're in a time where the modern conveniences that exist now just weren't an option. So something as simple as like the birth of a child is this gruesome, almost horrifying act. <laughs> so everything has has just more of a grittiness and then like a. And I'm sure it's intentional, but like a, a, a sense-oriented feel like to it um, throughout the book. Yeah, um, the dude just does a great job of it. And I'm sure we're going to illustrate this more with um, – I just counted my quotes, and I come in at 33 quotes. So I'm sure we're going to have plenty of stuff to read to you um, uh, to kind of demonstrate those things. But, yeah, like the the, the descriptiveness of the book with, with things that have to do with the senses is just amazing. Indeed. So we start off um, at the very, very beginning. So we start off, and what the description is, is the, the basically the, the smelliest place on Earth, which is <laughs> in France in the 18th century. Um, but worse than that, it's in a fish market. So there's you know, a fairly yeah. long description of how bad this smells. And it's, it's uh, Jean-Baptiste's um, mother, who is pregnant with her fifth child, who doesn't think it's a very big deal to be pregnant anymore because she's... she's um, Stillborn, Del- stillborn, like four. Yeah, I was going to say, delivered stillborn um, infants um, four previous times, or, or in, in one case, I believe, was some one that lived just moments after being born. And um, yeah, that's it. She's working her fish table. She's gutting fish and doing her thing, and it's time. And literally, she has the shortest labor um, ever. <laughs> some of this <laughs> is going to get mixed in with the fact that um, both Rob and I watched the movie over the last 48 hours or so. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so she immediately kind of squeezes out this kid and goes right back to working because she assumes that the, the infant is dead. Yeah, and um, and this is where I'll demonstrate this with some of the stuff that that I that I that I highlighted as quotes. But like this is where, from the very moment that the baby decides not to just up and die, you realize that there's something a something special about the baby and b something really wrong about the baby because. Um, you know, the cry of the infant is what uh, alerts people in the area to the fact that, like, this woman just gave birth to a child and had essentially given it up for dead, no matter what the actual outcome was. Um, but then uh, it, it doesn't take long for people to realize that there's something off about the child. And and it's the fact that the baby seems to be, um, in a very invasive way, taking in its surroundings through through smelling things, which is, is off-putting to... After, um, essentially, uh, this is the very, very beginning of the book, so it's not a spoiler. The baby crying is what leads to his mother being um, hanged at the gallows for trying to murder a child, basically. 
Um, and that sets off a pattern that you'll see throughout the life of Granoe, which is basically that um, whoever whoever has the, I guess you would say, misfortune to, to spend a significant, to have a significant role in his life um, experiences a very tragic end. But um, uh, <laughs> the... The sense of smell, which is the main factor throughout the book, starts from the very, very beginning. And it's such an off-putting thing that um, at the beginning of the book, not only does he have a very acute sense of smell, um, which is just kind of hinted at when he's a baby in the fact that he seems to be smelling more vigorously than others would, like smelling things. But then also, um, like, whatever wet nurse is is, is feeding uh, the baby to keep him alive because he's an orphan um, feels very uncomfortable and, and just, like, wrong about feeding this baby because the baby doesn't have a smell of his own but um, is so fiercely smelling other things. It's it's a weird combination that's very, very off-putting. Mm-hmm. So, basically, he, um, you know, through... Uh lack of desire on people's parts to take care of him he gets dumped off at an at an orphanage and his luck is in that um quite honestly i think the most interesting character other than him in the book in my opinion is the woman who who runs the orphanage who uh, runs a great orphanage because she she has no no emotion so she has no emotional ties to these kids and she's all about running her business and she does it in such a business-like way that nobody is um, favorited or whatever the opposite of favorited would be. There's probably a word for that, right? <laughs> I've never been that, so I don't. I don't know what that oh, is. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so he's actually given a real fair shake um, in in her orphanage simply because um, you know the the local church that has has put him there just continues to pay his his annual dues. You know, to to be in the orphanage. So um, that's where we first start to see that people um other than when he's you know a baby that he's so off-putting that other children take to to being you know kind of creeped out by him and then of course as children do instead of avoiding him you know they they kind of antagonize and and attack him but uh he is a he's a survivor man he kind of comes through things like like his birth he he continues to to exist despite people's best efforts to make it not so and i think that the big thing that you said was despite because there's nothing that he does out of the pure spirit of like, you know, like the purity of life. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all in spite of something else. <laughs> yep. Even from a young age, his survival is based solely on the fact that like it shouldn't happen. And he's doing it in spite of, of the odds or of other people or expectations or anything like that. His survival and his perseverance is all predicated on this shouldn't be. And that's the only reason that it ends up happening because, like, he perseveres in spite of things. Um, from Madame Galliard's place, which is the uh, the orphanage, uh, at a young age, eventually, the church or monastery or whatever it is that's actually paying the madam to to uh, board him as a child stops paying for for him to be there so she sells him to a tanner and that's his first choice uh his first experience as a young child i think like age eight or so of of working for a living and he he helps someone who just basically tans leather um as like a like i guess you would say the equivalent of like a slave right 
Yeah, yeah. Once they're sold to them, that's it. They're kind of given room and board, and maybe thrown, you know, pittance of, of um, as we find later. I don't know if actually if Grimal actually pays him or not, but um, yeah. So he indentured servant, I guess, would kind of be the. Yeah, because he doesn't earn a wage or anything. He basically mm-hmm. survives by working for this person and sleeps in a closet or something like that on the mm-hmm. floor until like he becomes a little bit more, you know, useful. And then he goes, he graduates to being able to build his own bed within the closet and stuff like that. So um, Grimal the Tanner, um, through the fact that like um, Granoui survives illnesses, he's got a very robust, again, immune system based on. His just un unending ability to survive things um, makes him valuable because he can he survives anthrax and anthrax with like cow hides and stuff was a big thing in the day. If you had a, a cow that was infected with anthrax and then you were trying to tan its hide, you contract anthrax, you die, boom, that's it. So him having survived anthrax was immune to it, which made him even more valuable to a tanner because it was someone who he was guaranteed would not have to, you know, be replaced and stuff like that. So through like the sheer, just like stubborn will to live, he makes himself valuable to people until, you know, the next step where he becomes more valuable to someone else. And and the next part of his journey begins the funny thing. And it's interesting to point out, I know I'm kind of rambling, that you see with the Madame Galliard first, but then like when Grimal eventually trades him over to the next person is it starts with his mother and every person, like I said before, that has like a significant part in his life has a tragic end. And I don't know if you want to talk about this now or later, but <laughs> when Grimal gets a great deal for, for Granoui, when he, when he goes to the next step in his life, a tragic end meets, meets uh, Grimal. You touched on something that I, we should probably talk about because I also thought it was it was kind of interesting in a way. So if we take a step back to when he's at the orphanage, um, he has this great sense of smell. And at one point they even talk about how he doesn't start talking at the same age as other kids. And when he finally does start talking, it's mostly to identify by by verbally what by the items that he's smelling. Mm-hmm. So like his first word is wood. Because, you know, it's it's the scent of wood, so he learns that word and he uses it. But he becomes very useful to these people. So you touched on it a little bit with um, with Grimal and the tannery. And, you know, there's another thing where he basically scents... All right. When he's in the orphanage, he learns, you know, that, that he can smell all these things. And he kind of wants to smell everything. It's He wants to discover all the things he can smell. But he becomes very useful because he can, like, walk around in the dark and not you know be bothered he'll go and clean the outhouse because scents to him aren't good or bad they just exist mm-hmm. so he becomes very useful when he's he gets not to afraid of the dark yeah. yep yep yeah he's not afraid of the dark because he kind of can see using his sense of smell mm-hmm. so to speak when he goes to Grimal, he's very useful um yes there's the anthrax thing but there are situations that are very hard for people to work in for long periods because of the smells and again he is unaffected by this he just kind of works through it because to him you know, there's there's segments in the book where they talk about, you know, like cow dung and how to him that's no different than the smell of a lilac. I mean, it smells different, but it doesn't bother him any more than, you know, something that might bother you or I. But that all these people basically use him and that once his usefulness is up, they trade him off and then they kind of meet their tragic end. Yeah. So it, there's a little bit of a, of a you know, supernatural. I mean, the, the scent thing does not at all come off as supernatural in the book, other than he has this heightened sense that the rest of us don't. So there's no, 
there's no indication that it's it's a, a you know something a god-given gift or, or that you know he's an alien or anything crazy like that he just has this heightened sense but there is this slight supernatural twist of the thing that befalls those that use him and then pass him along yeah um <laughs> which is just so great um his his mother discards him because uh, you know she just writes him off as as being stillborn or you know soon to die, and she goes to the gallows for being a baby killer, despite the fact that he doesn't die. <laughs> uh, Grimall, um, when so basically we kind of jumped over uh, at it's at one point, Granui goes to um, uh, Giuseppe Baldini, which is a, a perfumer in town. Um, f- he was sent there with some um, leather that was sent from Grimal to uh, Baldini for a project that Baldini was working on. And in the course of talking to Baldini, and this is one of the kind of pivotal moments in the in the book, um, he demonstrates his his mastery of scent by um, uh, to Baldini in in a way that makes Baldini hire him on, and he goes to Grimal and offers him just like a king's ransom essentially for Granoui and uh, <laughs> in the in the short time following the actual transaction uh of course Grimal goes out and gets like like drunk and and on the on his walk home um slips and hits his head and falls in the river and dies so it's like a very quick uh quick and dirty kind of uh end to a person who uh, didn't really ever care too much about Granoui himself and just kind of used him for what, what they could get out of him. Like, it was just like a very, oh, this person's more useful than, and than the average person, and instead of valuing him, I'm just going to use him and, and, and profit or benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So, um, as Rob mentioned, um, Granoui goes on to apprentice for a perfumer um, and is, um, you know, People might figure it's a very good thing to have somebody that understands the, all the sense of the world and how they work together. Um, what was I'm sorry? What was the perfumer's name? Uh, it is Giuseppe Baldini. Baldini is what he's referred to as. So, Baldini was once a very, very famous and, and um, well-off perfumer, and uh, times change. And as he became older and didn't kind of keep up with the times, he, he fell behind in his. His business is failing. So at one point, he's even you know kind of planning how he's going to sell it off the next day, and he's going to move to I don't know, some other country with his wife and live in poverty basically for the rest of his life. <laughs> um, until uh, Granui you know crosses his doorstep and he sees this opportunity. So uh, this is twofold. This is the one time where Granui actually gets something in return, and he gets to learn how um, not just to make sense, but how to preserve them. Because for him, they're always fleeting, kind of catalog them in his mind, but there are scents he'd like to smell again, and some are far, far rarer than um, than others, as we find through the course of the book. Yeah, and I guess that's the pivotal part that we... We, I don't think we intentionally just... There's just so much... There's such a dense book with so much going on and everything... That's that's the thing that when you read this book you realize is there's nothing that's not important. There's nothing that's in there that's just like by chance. The the, the author of this book did a wonderful job of just making everything critical to what was going on in the story. So um, in his discovery of, of uh, Paris, the setting for his life, uh, growing up first in the orphanage and then in the tannery, more so in the tannery, in his free time that he eventually earns by being useful... 
Grindelweed discovers what is the most beautiful um, scent, I guess, in the world. I guess is how I would put it. And that is the scent of a virgin woman who is basically uh, coming of age. So at that at that age when you go from being a, a gen, like a what's the word I'm looking for like a pure kind of adolescent mm-hmm. to a grown woman, um, the scent that he picks up from from this particular girl in this one scene is overpoweringly alluring to him. And um, at the time that he encounters her, the only thing he can do to preserve it is to smell it as much as possible to keep it in his mind. But it makes him essentially obsessed with the idea of being able to, like Livius was saying, you know, preserve it for real and be able to uh, uh, experience it over time. So that's what makes him want to go to work for a perfumer to learn these tactics or, or, or tricks or of the trade is that... He wants to be able to take the actual smell of a virgin woman who's coming of age and and, and to recreate or preserve it or, or transform it basically into a medium that is, is not fleeting, that it's kind of more permanent. And that, folks, is the first 30% of that book. It's a lot of shit to talk about. <laughs> it is a lot to talk about. Um, <laughs> This book is only 300 pages? Um, I think it clocks in like 240, 250, something okay. like that. It reads like a 500-page book. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. Um, but um, it is it is probably one of the densest books we've read. De- right. Definitely for the book, for the podcast, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's what I meant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's you know. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot else we're going to talk about story wise. Um, I think we've kind of done done our due diligence on the first third. Yeah, to establish kind of the the origin story up to the motive of the main character was really the best we could do for this. There's. So much information that's so great to just be revealed as the book unfolds that I think this is a good kind of stopping point for the more specifics. Maybe we could go into generalities, but you'll get a lot of it out of the quotes, I think, more than anything. Um, Interesting note in this book, and I I struggled to really think of another book that we reviewed where there was nothing at all likable about the protagonist. (laughs) That's and that's the thing too because it's told in the third person, so it's an omniscient narrator. But um, at the same time, it's it's from it's all about his life. It's all about the life of Granoui. So we don't ever see anything from a different person's perspective, really. Um, or if we do, it's very, very, very small. So <laughs> you we're kind of forced into identifying with a very unidentifiable character from the very beginning nobody likes him um for him you know for what he is all they like is what they can get from him so yeah just not a very redeemable character at all yeah it's just an interesting um an interesting way to take the book because you know you've got the the like anti-hero you know trope and those are always kind of likable characters it's just the author didn't he didn't even try i mean it was it felt like he was relaying a story and not writing, not creating one. 
Because sure. you would think at some point you'd find some endearing quality that he has that you could hold down to and root for him. And you know what? You're not rooting for him at all throughout this book. You're just not doing it. You know, you kind of want him <laughs> to get out of these bad situations. So I'm going to go back to the first time I read. I kept thinking, oh, he's going to find somebody that cares about him. So, okay, orphanages are, are notorious for not caring about anybody. Oh, the tanner's going to like him. Nope, tanner's a dick. Okay, the perfumer. The perfumer's got to love him, right? Like, this is the perfect person. Nope, the perfumer doesn't really care for me. You know what I mean? Yep. You kept wanting to. But um, it didn't happen. You wanted it just because you wanted his life to be less shitty. But it wasn't because you cared about him. It's because you just felt bad. So yeah. It was an interesting then, approach for a writer, I think. And then the um, the interesting flip side to that is that, like, the insights in the character that you see from the, the third party, uh, the I'm sorry, the third person um, perspective, never try to make him in any way um, sympathetic to the reader. Mm-hmm. I mean, and any time that he reflects on people, it's it's very much like he's disgusted by people. Um, and, you know, that the, it, it, <laughs> when he actually, eventually when he actually leaves Paris to go to other places, he avoids, uh, he avoids them at any means possible because their stench is disgusting to him. So um, in as much as people use him and, and suffer for doing so, I think that he... He sees it as he's tolerating these people to get what he needs. So nobody's happy with anybody in this book, if you think about it. If you think about it That's enough. Very, very true. Very true. Um, I did find from from this book, though, that um, at least in, in Suskin's mind... so the, This goes a little bit deeper into, into the book, I guess. But what I found was really interesting, and we touched on a little bit, the, the smell of a, of a virgin girl. Mm-hmm is what he equates to the most beautiful smell in the world. And he talks, and this is later in the book, but Granui in in his head, you know, is kind of sussing out that this really interesting theory that the beautiful women, and I'll say specifically women because that's what he's talking about in the book, um, aren't so much beautiful as they have a scent that's very alluring that makes them beautiful. Yeah. But did you notice, and, and this was in the book, and, and this carried over into the movie, but it was put this way in the book, that apparently the most beautiful women in the world are redheads. That was... <laughs> um, it was not lost on me um, that the two, I think two in particular, there was the mm-hmm. first woman he met, and mm-hmm. then basically the the ultimate, um, mm-hmm. like the paragon example of a, of a woman, or a young woman, uh, the, per- the perfect woman for him was yeah they were both redheads yeah i thought i thought that was kind of interesting (laughs) that that was his approach was that you know my thought too and we'll talk about this a little bit later on if there's enough time for it uh it is i wonder how much of this draws on just like the actual experience of the writer because um the author himself very much a recluse does not like um you know he he never um, allows interviews or really any kind of photographs of himself or anything like that. And um, and just the way that um, the scenes of, of solitude and the scenes that Granoui kind of relished in the absence of other people made me wonder if the author himself just hated people in general. So I wonder how much of this was actually drawn at some level from personal experience of the author. 
interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that um, that that was the case as far as the author goes. But yeah, autobiographical. It's a fucking loner who loves redheads. I mean, <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. He's just got some crazy like German man boner for redheads or something like that. Yeah. And, um, the one more thing I want to say about Granui and, and the story before we get into your quotes because I don't have 33. I have like a handful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, we talk about, you know, kind of chasing out women and trying to recreate this and none of it is sexual. There's nothing and you would think. And as you're reading this book or even watching this movie, you kind of expect it. And there's some parts, but really for him, it's all about the scent. It's not about companionship. It's not about um, actual sex. It's not, it's literally, it's, it's, it's all about his nose, you know, and, and, and how he takes in the world through that medium, which is, uh, also kind of interesting um, yeah there's no psychological sexual equivalent for taking in one scent you know like the the mm-hmm. this kind of ultimate scent does not like give him the psychological equivalent of like arousal at all it's just mm-hmm. it's a sublime kind of you know it really plays on the idea of how much in a subtle way scent makes us uh, influences our feelings about things makes sense oh i see what you did there do you want to talk about anything kind of overall broad strokes about the book or you want to go into some quotes um no there's some stuff i want to talk about about the movie but we'll do that after we're after we're after we put this book to bed cool i'll start quotes because i've got 33 of them this is from uh the beginning of the book where granui is um his first wet maid, wet nurse, whatever you want to call him, has kind of rejected him, and the the whatever male holy person, priest or whatever from the mm-hmm. for the orphanage uh, or the church, the nearby church or whatever it is, uh, is is has taken him back. Try well before he can find someone else for the to take care of him. Basically, before he he goes to Madame Galliard's place, the child with and and this is like. <laughs> This is the part where he goes from thinking, oh, you know what, this woman just didn't want to bother with this kid, to thinking there might actually be something wrong with this kid. The child with no smell was smelling at him shamelessly. That was it. It was establishing his scent. And all at once, he felt as if he stank of sweat and vinegar uh, and unwashed clothes. He felt naked and ugly as if someone was gaping at him while revealing nothing of himself. The child seemed to be smelling right through his skin, into his innards. His most tender emotions, his filthiest thought, his filthiest thoughts, lay exposed to that greedy little nose, which wasn't even a proper nose, but only a pug of a nose, a tiny perforated organ, forever crinkling and puffing and quivering. Quivering, Terrier shuddered. He felt sick to his stomach. He pulled back his own nose as if he smelled something foul that he wanted nothing to do with. And that's like the type of writing that happens throughout the entire book. This isn't like one-off, like incredibly well-written sentence. That's how the whole book reads. I'm going to go back as far uh, to the beginning of this book as you can. Um, This is the first line in the book. In 18th century France, there lived a man who was one of the most gifted and abominable personages in an era that knew no lack of gifted and abominable personages. It's good. Yeah, way to set up your uh, your number one guy. Here's um, here's something that uh, having reread the book now and, and rewatched the movie, 
kind of comes through to me as as the main theme of of the overall story, and that's it's the love or the lack of love in the book. The cry that followed his birth, the cry with which he had brought himself to people's attention and his mother to the gallows, was not an instinctive cry for sympathy and love. That cry, emitted upon careful consideration, one might almost say upon mature consideration, was the newborn's decision against love and nevertheless for life. That is fucked up for a newborn infant. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, it is. But you're right. It, it's, it's very fitting and it is kind of the, the theme of, you know, everything he does is kind of carefully decided and none of it's done on an emotional basis. So, Yep. Um, this one's a little long, but again, from very early in the book, 8% in. Or like that tick in the tree for which life has nothing better to offer than perpetual hibernation. The ugly little tick, which by rolling its blue-gray body up into a ball offers the least possible surface to the world, which by making its skin smooth and dense emits nothing, lets not the tiniest bit of perspiration escape. The tick, which makes itself extra small and inconspicuous so that no one will see it and step on it. The lonely tick, which wrapped up in itself, huddles in its tree, blind, deaf, and dumb, and simply sniffs, sniffs all year long for miles around for the blood of some passing animal that it can never reach under its own power. The tick could let itself drop. It could fall to the floor of the forest and creep a millimeter or two here or there on its six tiny legs and lie down to die under the leaves. It would be no great loss, God knows. But the tick, stubborn, sullen, and loathsome, huddles there and lives and waits. Waits for that most improbable of chances that will bring blood in animal form directly beneath its tree, and only then does it abandon caution and drop and scratch and bore and bite into that alien flesh. The young Grenouille was such a tick. Interrupting the quotes, have you ever been the victim of a tick? No, I have not. Oh, God. In my in all my days of growing up and living in Illinois, where ticks do exist, never, never once, right? In the two years that I lived in Vermont, <laughs> <laughs> which is apparently the fucking tick capital of the universe, uh, two separate times. One, one, there was a tick... One, the much more more uh, acceptable one, there was a tick on my wrist, on my left wrist, very close to, like, you know, like, the my hand. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, there's a tick, and I took care of it. Um, after, like, you know, ten minutes of internet research of the best way to get rid of a tick while I'm watching a tick writhing on my fucking wrist, which is disgusting. <laughs> um, the other time, and this is just horrifying, is... Um, <laughs> Uh, on my leg, <laughs> inner thigh, and we're talking like probably like you know within a half a foot of like you know the Your home junk of home plate of my of junk yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a tick that was just like buried, ready to go, man, just buried in my skin. It was disgusting. That sounds one horrible. Of the most, like yeah, awful things I've ever experienced. So, he is uh, Grandui is is throughout the book referred to uh, as having the resilience of a tick, and every time I just I just I just imagine that little bastard hooked onto my inner thigh. <laughs> <laughs> it's disgusting. Um, really quick one from from when Grandui's growing up in the orphanage. Um, I have a bunch of them later on when he's an adult and everything, and, and the fun, interesting perfume stuff. But this one, um, the the kids are so off put by, 
his constant crying and the fact that he gives off no scent and all these different things that they try to kill him because they think that's the right thing to do. Um, but over time, they just kind of give up on it. Here's the quote. As he grew older, they gave up their attempted murders. They probably realized that he could not be destroyed. It's <laughs> awesome. It was very good. This one, all right, this is when uh, uh, we kind of, uh, he's working for the Tanner, and he kind of gets his first taste of, like, the greater world. And it's, um, it's this is the scent that he finds that is is amazing before he finds the scent of the woman which not the scent of a woman which is that movie with um al pacino and uh what's the other guy chris something you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. you ever watch that the guy movie? played the guy who played robin in batman and robin <laughs> yeah did yes, you see chris that movie? o'donnell yes chris o'donnell yeah i'll take a flamethrower to this place not that book not that um scent of a woman but uh this is <laughs> the first time he smells the sea uh, it had a simple smell, the sea, but at the same time it smelled immense and unique, so much so that Granui hesitated to dissect the odors into fishy, salty, watery, seaweedy, fresh, airy, and so on. He, pref- he preferred to leave the smell of the sea blended together, preserving it as a unit in his memory, relishing it whole. And that's like the closest to innocence and wonder you will ever find with this character. Yeah. I have to agree. I also thought that was interesting because that is, um, you know, again, having read through a second time, that's like the first indication of like perfume of him, like working scents together. Right. To create a better scent and not breaking just things down into its elements mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Which is, um, leads me to this quote, which I mentioned a little bit during the review. Um, <clears throat> um, for instance, the white drink that Madame Galliard served her wards every day. Why would it be designated uniformly as milk? When to Granouille's senses it smelled and tasted completely different every morning, depending on how warm it was, which cow it had come from, what that cow had been eating, how much cream had been left in it, and so on. Or why should smoke possess only the name smoke? When from minute to minute, second to second, the amalgam of hundreds of odors mixed iridescently into the ever new, and it goes on and on. But that's, I thought that was kind of interesting. That we just don't have enough words. Yeah, definitely. I've got a trifecta of quotes that probably happen within a page of each other, but they all relate. Do you mind if I throw them all together? No, no. Nope. First one. A hundred thousand odors seemed worthless in the presence of this in the presence of this scent. This one scent was the higher principle, the pattern by which others must be ordered. It was pure beauty. The second quote. He had found the compass for his future life. And like all gifted abominations, for whom some external event makes straight the way down into the chaotic vortex of their souls, Granui never again departed from what he believed was the direction fate had pointed him. And the third quote, He must become a creator of scents, and not just an average one, but rather the greatest perfumer of all times. And those kind of all tie together because they're within like you know a page of each other. That's mm-hmm. basically the overall conceit of the book right there, those three quotes. This one, I don't even know what this... I, I went back three pages to try to figure out what the hell this quote was about. All I know is that there is a... Um, it's just a sentence. I lo- I'm pretty sure that this last <laughs> word is made up, but I absolutely love it. Um, blah, blah, blah. He was set free or allowed out of the country from where he went right on with his unconscionable pamphleteering. <laughs> Pamphleteering, kind of cool. man. That is excellent. I love that. 
<laughs> that it's unconscionable is pretty hilarious, actually. If you yes. Think about it. Yep. <laughs> Here, here's another insight into the 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 thought process of Granui. Um, halfway through the book. Uh, he who ruled Sent ruled the hearts of men. Granui sat at his ease on his bench in the cathedral of St. Pierre and smiled. His mood was not euphoric, and he formed his plans to, as he formed his plans to rule humankind. There were no mad flashings of his eye, no lunatic grimace passed over his face. He was not out of his mind, which was so clear and buoyant that he asked himself why he wanted to do it at all. And he said to himself that he wanted to do it because he was evil. Thoroughly evil. I mean, it's just like written out in plain English that we're not supposed to like this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point, I don't think this really um, spoils anything, but Granui is trying to make a scent, a perfume that is, um, Rob had mentioned that Granui himself had no scent. So at one point he's trying to make himself just kind of blend in with people. So he's, he's putting together a person perfume. I'm going to read to you what some of this entails and what we smell like to somebody like Granui. There was a little pile of cat shit behind the threshold of the door leading out to the courtyard, still quite fresh. He took half a teaspoon of it and placed it together with several drops of vinegar and finely ground salt into a mixing bottle. Under the work table, he found a thumbnail-sized piece of cheese, apparently from one of Runel's lunches. It was already quite old, had begun to decompose, and gave off a biting, pungent odor. From the lid of a sardine tub that stood at the back of the shop, he scratched off a rancid, fishy something or other, mixed it with rotten egg and castorium, ammonia, nutmeg, horn shavings, and singed pork rind, finely ground. To this, he added a relatively large amount of civet, mixed these ghastly ingredients with alcohol, let it digest, and filtered it into a second bottle. The bilge? Bilge? Bilge, B-I-L-G-E, bilge, bilge, smelled revolting. Its stink was putrid like a sewer, and if you fanned its vapor just once to mix it with fresh air, it was as if you were standing in Paris on a hot summer day at a corner of the Rue Affaire and the Rue de la Lingerie, where the odors from Les Halles, the Cimetière, blah, 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 and the overcrowded tenements converged. It's crazy. Like, he basically knows how to recreate any scent right mm-hmm. yep um which kind of ties into this next quote that i want to do which is just more for the overall imagery of it than anything but in his pursuit of being able to uh preserve or recreate the scent of anything he has to do experiments and so um at one point under um uh his his mentor in paris the perfumer um, he learns distillery, which basically is like putting things in water to distill the scent into uh, like a concentrated form. Um, and he fails at recreating certain scents just because um, distillery basically like separates the oil of something from the rest of it and, and concentrates the oil together. And some things just don't have oils to separate. So he's trying to distill like a brass doorknob and a piece of wood, and it's not working because you can't distill oils from something that don't emit them. Um, later on, he learns that there's another way um, through uh, covering things in like an animal lard that you can extract scent from them. And so when he gets to uh, the next place he's living in, which I think the town is called Grass, mm-hmm. uh, he, he learns that uh, a trade or, or, you know, that trick or whatever you want to call it, that, that, process for for extracting scent 
And so he decides again to start his experiments with trying to take scents from unconventional things. And, uh, of course, the ultimate goal being humans, so he has to start with something living. And (laughs) he starts with a puppy. (laughs) And and here's the quote. Uh, He... uh, (laughs) When he kills, the, he kills the puppy. Death descended on the puppy so suddenly that the expression of happiness was still on its mouth and in its eyes, long after Granui had bedded it down in the impregnating room on a grate between two greased plates where it exuded its pure doggy scent unadulterated by the sweat of fear. And it's so just morbid, but like scientific in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my last quote, and I have to imagine that with 33 quotes, this is one of Rob's, but I'm light on quotes, so I'm taking this one anyway. He is uh, putting together his master plan, I guess is the only way I can set this up. And he knew that all this was within his power, for people could close their eyes to greatness, to horrors, to beauty, and their ears to melodies or deceiving words, but they could not escape scent. For scent was a brother of breath. Uh, somehow I did not highlight that quote. Holy shit, it's the best one in the book. Uh, yeah, it is. it's it is. <laughs> so I'll just have to do these inferior. I've got two more. <laughs> and this is, you know, winding down toward middle to end of the book. Uh, where he finds pretty much the ultimate scent. Um, and in the... Yeah, I won't go too much into detail, but this won't this won't spoil anything. She was indeed a girl of exquisite beauty. She was one of those languid women made of dark honey, smooth and sweet and terribly sticky, uh, who take control of a room with a syrupy gesture, a toss of the hair, a single slow whiplash of the eye, and all the while remain as still as the center of a hurricane, apparently unaware of the force of gravity by which they irresistibly attract to themselves the yearnings and the souls of both men and women. In the movie, there's actually a cool part where uh, he accidentally drips a drop of the extracted scent of a woman onto his hand, and it immediately changes the way that someone speaks to him, and it's really powerful. Um, I thought it was really cool. Mm-hmm. Toward the end, and in the beginning of the movie, if someone's seen the movie, you'll know this, um, and, and it's no real shock from the books so i don't think this is a spoiler uh, at some point he's he's sentenced to death granoui is and the only reason i want to talk about this is because we have to talk about it when we talk about the movie anyway is that like the result the revolt the result of his perfume is this massive orgy um and this is uh this is the point in the in the point in the part of the execution where it goes from everybody hating him to them smelling his like perfect perfume and and fucking each other (laughs) the result was that the scheduled execution of one of the most abominable criminals in the in of the age degenerated into the largest orgy the world had seen since the second century before christ respectable women ripped open their blouses bared their breasts cried out hysterically threw themselves on the ground with skirts hitched high can I just tell you that when I was watching the movie um, earlier today, it <laughs> occurred to me that, that that actual that scene was the inspiration for every commercial for Axe body spray ever made. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, just imagine if that movie had been made five, five years later. <laughs> I have one final quote, which uh, 
probably rivals Livius's quote for, for the power that it holds. He held it in his hand, a power stronger than the power of money, or the power of terror, or the power of death. The invincible power to command the love of mankind. Yeah, that was boom good too. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> Axe body spray. <laughs> <sighs> All right, let's uh, let's uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. Go for it. All right, so on my second read through, um, you know, I'm glad that we got to talk this out, which which frequently can change how I feel about a book having Rob to bounce it off of for you know 45 minutes or whatever. But um, I loved this book when I when I read it um, originally. I didn't quite love it as much on a reread, and I think part of that was that I knew where the book was heading, and and I knew all the you know little intricacies of Grinnewy's life and all the stuff that I really loved the first time. So. I, Went into this kind of lukewarm tonight. On it's a great book. I mean, I'm, I'm, no point did I not think that. Um, but my rating was originally changed from you know ten years ago when I when I first read it. Um, but in talking with Rob about it and, and how great this book is, the only drawback I see is it, it suffers a little bit from um, something that a lot of books do. I, the Suskind, I think, and in my opinion at least, was a little troubled with the middle of the book. Um, there's a uh, Rob touched on it as Grenouille leaves um, Paris and, and is going to grass. He kind of takes this little detour, and the detour is supposed to serve for insight and, and everything else, and, and it just went on for a little too long. Other than that, this book might just be goddamn perfection. Um, it's interesting in that it has a, uh, a protagonist that, you know, there's a, lots of books where you're not supposed to like the protagonist, but you do anyway. And whenever we talk about this in books, I'm always, <laughs> I always give the example of a TV show. You're not supposed to like Vic Mackey, but God damn it, you do. You watch The Shield and you root for this guy, even though he's the wrong guy to root for. In this one, you don't even, you don't root for Granui, you don't root for anything. You just kind of read this, this fairy tale story as it's told to you, but it is a great story in all of its scope. It's wonderfully well written. Something we didn't talk about at all is it's a translation from German. So I don't know how much credit we give Suskind and how much credit we have to give his translator for this beautifully, beautifully written book. Um, but it's it's definitely um, something that uh, anybody who considers themselves a literary reader should uh, should definitely read. I am going to go back to my original thoughts on this book and give it five stars. Ooh, yeah, that's funny that you say that because every time we review a book, what I what I set out, with the exception of like the obvious five star books, what I set out to to review it at, and what actually my review ends up being is is never the same because getting the perspective of someone else or just refining your specific your perspective as you talk about it just changes everything so mm-hmm. um i'll try and make my wrap-up brief because we've talked so long about the book already um masterful book uh if for no other reason read it for just the the vocabulary the the, the way that the words are put together um it's a manifesto you know it's it's someone's hundreds of pages of work thinking just about the power of scent um the power of of what emotions are i mean it's all about a guy who who's born out of hate being used for for his abilities and never being able to experience love and realizing what a sham that love and his life at least really actually ends up being so um there's some poignancy to it outside of the fact that he's just this creepy guy who smells really well and kills people is like it's it's a really outsider's look 
on how for some people love is just overrated um and to try and frame your life through um that perspective just doesn't work for some people he wasn't built for that type of emotion uh or to filter life through that that prism i guess so we didn't really talk about that much because there's just so goddamn much to talk about but it's really kind of a uh, I, I honestly i'll go back to thinking you know like my thought that the author himself that's kind of autobiographical in a way because from what i've read of the author very much a recluse very um critical of other people and i would imagine that um this is very much his way of uh creating a fairy tale of himself but the book itself is just so damn well written it's so insightful the 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 way it's written is just spellbinding and the concept is so singularly unique um, that it's just it's worth a read just to experience how different and unique it is. I loved the book the first time, uh, and of course this was a book that Livius recommended to me because he knows all the good books. Uh, loved the the movie the first time I saw it. Loved rereading the book even more, um, and rewatching the movie I just saw things I didn't see the first time. So overall. I think it was a five-star book before, and if I could do five and a half stars, I would. But of course, I'm just going to stay with the 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 five that I that I gave it originally. Well, that's settled. Boom. Yep. Five. Let's talk a little hey, bit about. Are we noticing a theme with the throwback books? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in here, I, I thought about that. So, the first throwback book we did, you hadn't read, and I had, and we both read this one. I think next throwback is going to have to be something none, neither of us have read. Yeah, just for the sake of fairness. Mm-hmm. I, I, the Bible, I, to kill a mockingbird. The Bible. Yeah, to kill a mockingbird was on that list with the the news about the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. I thought we should review that. I don't remember if I actually read it or if I Cliff's Notes did or watched a movie. I don't know if I've actually ever I read actually it. read it cover to cover. I have. There's talk about busting up a Schiffer robe. Well, there you go. That doesn't mean anything to you, does it? No, nothing at all. All right. That's fine. Um, I know there's black people in the book. <laughs> yeah, there are black people. There's some sort, somewhat of a racial uh, a theme running through the book. There's a legal theme. Yeah, there's a lot going on in To Kill a Mockingbird. Kid named Scout. Scout, and is it is Atticus. it is it the, in 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 the movie? Is it is it the guy from It's a Wonderful Life? Is he in this movie too? Um, you're imagining that I've seen either To Kill a Mockingbird or It's a okay. Wonderful Life. Oh wow! Okay, all right. Well, <clears throat> speaking of seeing movies, though, we both did watch um, Perfume. So let's talk a little bit about um, about the movie. Here's the thing that struck me most about that movie. I want you to think about this if you haven't thought about it already. For a movie that's so deeply, deeply rooted in scent, this was a very, very visually strong movie. Um, I hadn't thought of that. And actually, one of the things I will say before you go off on your tangent is I'm glad they didn't do a lot of cheesy effects to reproduce a visual version of scent. <laughs> that's that's very true. Yeah, there's only there's one. There's one part where where he's tracing the <laughs> smell of Laura. And they do yeah. like this really fast over the hills, like across ponds. Like this, like, I don't know. Like you, so, you kind of envision how he's finding her by her scent over vast, you know, expanses of space. 
but yeah, other than that, they didn't. But what they did do was a really good job of, um, especially early on in the movie, where he's smelling all these different things, and they're doing like these close-ups of maggots and you know, yeah. and, and just food. And I mean, but like these, and I was thinking like, holy crap, this is a really visually well-done movie. And then I thought, but wait a minute, this whole thing's about smells, but how closely those two relate. Because, you know, when you saw the swirling maggots up close, you could almost smell them, right? I mean, that that type of, you know, the girls running around with the plums. Like, you can smell the plums, because they just showed this big juicy bowl of them, like, kind of up close. Yeah, and to be fair, I think that, I mean, it's taking advantage not only of the fact that it's a visual medium, but the fact that we don't have really good smell. So to try and relay things through smell would just kind of fail. So this would have been a good it was a nice translation. smell a vision movie if you saw it in the theater. Oh, they just God spray shit us. at you here and there. <laughs> uh, in this book, they would literally spray shit at you. That's right. So. <laughs> I don't. This movie. Did you look up the the box office on this? Because I don't think this movie was very successful. Um, let's do that right now in the moment. Continue talking. Um, interestingly enough, this movie um, had um, Dustin Hoffman in it. It had, uh, God damn it, Hans Alan Gruber. Rickman. Yeah, that guy, <laughs> Hans Gruber, because that's how I think of him when I see him. Hans um, Gruber. Wow. Yeah, so you had a couple of big name actors in it. Um, interestingly enough, and Robert said how nobody in the book was really likable. Um, they managed to to make the perfumer kind of likable. The Dustin Hoffman character is yeah. uh, that's probably the one they embellish the most from the book to the movie. Right, they didn't make the, him the, kind of. Yeah, in the in the in the. Um... In the book, he's just very selfish and vain, and in the movie, he's the one that actually kind of invests probably more than anybody else. Holy shit. Are you ready for this? Yes. Uh, This is insane. This is definitely not an American movie. Are you ready to have your hair blown back? Mm Mm-hmm. Total worldwide gross for for the movie? $135 million. You want to know what the American gross was? Under two and a half million. (laughs) Under two and a half million. That's wow. So 132 million dollars of the gross for this movie happened overseas, not in America. This was definitely not an American favorite, but goddamn, it made money. The production budget sixty million. So it doubled its production budget. So it's definitely a, a successful movie. But if you think about that, the United States, which is like we're the biggest consumers of entertainment in the entire world, um, I would imagine at least uh, it was a pittance compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, the movie was a little long. It's a period piece, which typically, you know, from, from what I know at least, don't do very well financially in the United States. We don't really care about the 18th century <laughs> and France. That's fair. So yeah. it's not that surprising. Um, it's a very good movie. It's also a little long. I mean, the movie is like two, almost two and a half hours long. So it's probably a little yep. longer than the attention span of the movie goer that makes a movie a blockbuster here in the United States. I think that sweet spots at like a hundred minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree. It is a little bit on the long side and surprisingly it cuts so much out of the book that you would imagine like, the first 30 to 40% of the book is encapsulated in, I would say, 15 minutes of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. 
really the majority of the movie is the last I would say 20% of the book so like when they adapted the the book into a movie they said here is our here's our here's our main piece everything else is going to be the build up so they took 80% of the book and condensed it down into 20 minutes and they took 20% of the book and condensed it and, and not condensed it but like really built it out into the other like two hours of the of the movie Interestingly enough, though, I don't know how much differently they could have done it because with so much of the internal monologue, yeah, you know, like him as a as a as a kid at the orphanage would have been really hard to translate into that. I mean, I think they did a good job with the the few you know scenes that they showed. It's the same thing when he was working at the tannery because you had mentioned and we didn't talk about this a lot um, during the review, but you mentioned um, last week when we were talking about this about how little dialogue there is in the book. When you lack yeah. dialogue, it's really hard to, to do movie scenes without people talking, you know. So, um, you did have that uh, right. that narrator kind of pop in throughout, but I'm glad it didn't become a, a you know Morgan Freeman um, Penguin style movie where, you know, <laughs> where where that guy's talking in your head the entire time while you're showing these scenes of Grenouille just smelling stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Um. Overall thoughts on the movie versus the book, though. I mean, as far as adaptations go, I think it's more interesting to talk about how the movie came about than the movie itself, because we we have to spend a couple minutes on that. But as far as overall adaptations go, um, I think it did a really damn good job of, of portraying the overall message of of the book. Oh yeah, no, I you know they changed a few things. They obviously omitted quite a bit, but none of it, um, none of it took away from the story. I think that all of it. The the one thing that that they lost, I think, from the book was, um, Granui is almost universally referred to as hideous um, throughout the the course of the book, and and you know he's just not that bad looking a guy in the movie. They they didn't get a heartthrob. They didn't make him you know this real handsome guy, but he's like goddamn Quasimodo in the book. And in this, he just looked like yeah. a regular, you know, French, whatever, you know, just just impoverished youngster, I guess. So, like a like a peasant. Um, yeah, and the actually even in, even the reason he looked like a, a hideous person in the book was interesting. It was because it took so much for him to even just like bring take scent in that he his body physically recoiled from from things. So. It wasn't until he left Paris and modern civilization, uh, a modern at the time civilization, that he could actually kind of uncoil himself and not be like kind of hunched over because it was almost like his body was naturally almost like reactive, like reacting to the scent in, in a physical way, like it was physically hurting him. That was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I think they did a great job with the movie. But yeah, Rob did dig up some fairly interesting stuff. Writers, pay, pay, take note. It's some of the things Rob's going to talk about here. All right, so so going through IMDb, just looking up information about the movie Perfume, I discovered such incredible stuff. Like uh, just in reading about the author in general, it turned out that he was kind of recluse, like I mentioned before. But like his reluctance to to go to the medium of film is just kind of staggering, and and the what it took to get it on film is just it fucking blows my mind. So we'll we'll look at it a little bit, and we'll kind of do some comparisons. Olivia and I were talking about before. Um, uh, German German author Patrick Suskind and his uh, friend Bernd Eichlinger, I guess. 
Basically, from the time the book was was released in 1985 until 2001, was trying to get his, you know, to get Susskind to to sell the rights of the of the book for for a movie. And when he finally did, the price tag of the movie was in, of the rights to 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 make a movie was insane. It was 10 million euro in 2001, which we looked it up, and that basically it's it's almost like a one for one uh, conversion. But in 2001, selling the rights to a movie. For $10 million is fucking insane, if you ask me. The lesson to be learned for writers is that uh, you just got to hold out long enough. Right? Is <laughs> yeah, that... like 16 years. <laughs> yeah. Just until someone hits you pers- with $10 million. <laughs> Perspective on that, Fifty Shades of Grey, which um, at the height of its popularity in book form was selling a million and a half dollars. or No, no. Um, the author was earning a million and a half dollars a week off of the book. The rights for that movie sold for five million dollars, so half, half of what uh, Perfume's rights sold for. If you think about it that way, that's insane. That is completely insane. That is uh, that is pretty fucked up. But okay, so what? How much did you say this movie made in the United States? <laughs> two two point <laughs> like two million, two and a quarter million. All right, so Fifty Shades um, opened on Friday. Um, we're recording this on Sunday night, so 48 hours. Opening weekend for Fifty Shades, $81.7 million. Oh, my God. you got to be kidding me. That's the opening weekend, wow. and it says four-day, 90.7. Oh, I guess so maybe it opened on Thursday or something, like midnight or I don't yeah, know. Midnight but yeah, midnight Thursday. So, yeah, $81.7 million. <laughs> so, um Yikes! Um, yeah, ten million, dude. That's insane. I mean, I don't know what the most paid for, and I'm sure there's a way to find out. I was trying to find like some Stephen King stuff and see how much he was getting. But some of those deals, I guess, depends on the way they're structured too. Is that you know they get the rights are sold cheap, but then you get a percentage of the box office, and you know. I mean, you got to. You know, I mean, many, if you're looking at the overall numbers that we had, sixty million dollar production budget, ten million, ten million for the rights is not mm-hmm. a lot of money, and the fact that they pulled down, one hundred thirty two. Uh, worldwide, they made their money back, but that's just such a high investment for what, in my perspective, is a, is a book that just doesn't matter in the overall like you know scene of the world, you know, of movies. Well, I'm thinking that it probably, if we looked up the book sales, we'd probably find a pretty significant disparity too, where it sold not so well. Oh God, and, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, I will say that that ten million dollars. Patrick Suskid with his 10 million euros, that buys lots of redheads. He is just stacked floor to ceiling with redheads right now. You know <laughs> He's that. Swimming in redheads with his 10 million euro. <laughs> can I, can I reveal what this is? I love this kind of behind the scenes stuff. The, um, in the movie, the perfume, the ultimate perfume, um, the actual mixture of, of liquids it was. Yes. Cola thinned with a bit of water. I mean, that would make me go into a wild orgy. I don't know about you. <laughs> Depends on what sure I'm on a, I got diet. a hair trigger. I got a <laughs> hair trigger when it comes to wild orgies. I'm a Diet Cola <laughs> guy, so I don't know. But, yeah, that is uh, that, that is interesting. Yeah, it's just uh, – and, and even the scene itself. Like, I, I'm sure there's probably, you know, chapters in a book written about how you choreograph several hundred people in kind of like a nude – <laughs> and it wasn't like overly pornographic or anything in the movie, but it is just this swarm of bodies everywhere. <laughs> so. Oh, there's actually information about that. Can I read that? Sure. Um, essentially, there was 
a hundred there was in the scene of the orgy in the movie there was a total of 750 actors of those 50 were like choreo like like professional dancers there was a hundred that were other key um like key players in the scene um that necessarily professional dancers and then the rest were just extras so um basically the way that it played out was the 50 you know main people plus the hundred key actors were the ones that did the the main movements and then the rest of the extras followed their lead more or less but can you imagine trying to be the director of a scene that there's 750 different people doing stuff in i would i would be intimidated by that you'd be standing up there with a woody the whole time they were all naked so yeah i'd probably have a a noticeable a visible erection (laughs) so but um so uncomfortable to work in these yeah um, uh, no, overall, a great movie. Even if you don't, <laughs> even if we didn't sell you on the book, because you go, I don't want to spend you know ten hours reading a book or whatever. Watch the movie; it's it's totally worth it. Yeah, and very authentic costumes created by Livius's people. My people, Romanians, created nearly every costume. There's some interesting stuff in there, though, like how they had to dirty the costumes and like actors had to sleep in their costumes and stuff to give them like an authentic feel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they were very method about their costume. Like, that's the thing. We would never smell them, but just so that they looked proper and everything, they would sleep in them night after night, which, uh, like, wear them day and night for for multiple days. Oh, it's so weird. It's so weird. So I'm glad that they made um, not just their money back, but that they did well internationally. Yeah, because it was kind of a flop in the United States, but damn, it's a good movie. Then you think about, you know, so Fifty Shades of Grey does, you know, almost $100 in four days. And then you get movies like, um, oh God, what's that? The, the the weird bachelor party Vegas movie, the like trilogy that did like four billion dollars. The Bachelor. No, that's is it. No, The Bachelor is a TV show. Oh, that's a <laughs> Hangover. That's what it's. Called. That's <laughs> it. The Hangover. That. You know, then Fuck. that's that's what we throw hundreds of millions <laughs> of dollars at. Not this kind of you know. And I don't know if it's a masterpiece as a movie or not, but God damn it, it's so much better than. You know, half the shit I've seen, you know, in, in American movie theaters. I have to say though, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy with the Fifty Shades of Grey like box office gross, because opening weekend of that Marvel movie, The Avengers, was a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So, um, this pales in comparison, which makes me very happy. Yep. Um, yep. 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 So I think that's it about the book and the movie. But there's one final thing that I read. I really, I really was. The trivia for the movie was the most, like, one of the most, like, at least revealing things for me because I had already read the book and seen the movie. So, like, this trivia, the stuff we were just talking about, really threw me for a loop. And it's really interesting. Um, two things. First of all, because it took 16 years for him to finally relent and sell the movie rights, in the time uh, of people trying to court the the author and get him to sell his rights. He wrote a screen screenplay for a, a movie called Rossini, which is basically a movie about someone who's trying to buy the rights for like this runaway bestseller of a book, and mm-hmm. and you know like it's it's a comedy making fun of the process. So he basically was so amused by people just falling over themselves to try and, and make a movie of this book that he wrote and and they made a movie out of out of the process. So I thought that was really cool. Um, did you know that, Livius? I did not. No, no, I did not. 
if I can find it with uh, with subtitles, American subtitles, I might watch it. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting because um, this kind of hits my my age range and everything is there's a song by Nirvana called "Scentless Apprentice," and um, Kurt Cobain is on the record as saying that he was inspired by this book, and that's that's where the lyrics for the song came from. And he used to carry around a copy of the book in his pocket because he loved it so much. So that was kind of cool. So he stopped he, carrying it around in his pocket now? Uh, if he shot himself in the face and died in 1994, <laughs> I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, I know. I know. I he, maybe <sighs> maybe he uh, identified with Granui a little too much. Do you know Do you know what my, my issue with, with Nirvana and Kurt Cobain is? Um, that you're too old. They signaled the death of of hair hair bands. Was, I knew that that's it. what you were gonna yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what? Fuck Nirvana and fuck Kurt Cobain. Um, the the lyrics though. I'm gonna read some lyrics really quick. Okay. Can you sing them? You seem to be familiar with it. Can you give us a little? We're not, that's not gonna happen. Okay. Oh, but the death knell. All right. So the de- <laughs> the death knell of that's what you said, right? Of of hair bands. Mm-hmm. You know who's who was like one of the one of an incredibly vocal person about that, right? Was um, Lita Ford? Yes. Oh, yeah. About how how she hated <laughs> Nirvana yes. for 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 killing uh, hair bands and glam rock and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Lita Ford, we're doing a, the degrees of Kevin Bacon here. Mm-hmm. Follows to this day. I check regularly. Follow <laughs> follows me on Twitter and Instagram, and I do not follow her back. I, here's the thing with Lita Ford, and I, I've never been one, and I know you and I have talked about this previously, maybe on the podcast. Like, I don't really care about interviews with, with like, you know, actors that I like. I'm usually just disappointed, and I'm, I'm the same way with musicians, because really all I want to hear is the, is the music. But to understand, my exposure to Lita Ford was a couple of videos, and she was super smoking hot, right? The first yep. time I hear an interview with her is, is uh, you know, a few years after the death of hair bands. And she's just this foul-mouthed brass, just, just, ugh. Guys, she was terrible. I was like, I just want to go back to picturing Lita <laughs> Ford the way I always thought of Lita Ford. Because she was like this bitter old hag. Like two or three so, years after she was like the sexiest woman in rock music. <laughs> so, ugh. What I'm hearing is that Lita Ford ruined Lita Ford for you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Ugh. All right, here's some lyrics. You ready for this? Yes. Like most babies smell like butter. His smell smelled like no other. He was born scentless and senseless. He was born a scentless apprentice. Uh, every wet nurse refused to feed him. Um, other stuff. He says, I promise not to sell your perfume secrets. It's basically like a straight up reference to the book. It's pretty crazy. I never would have noticed it until I read that, that bit of trivia. Pretty cool. <sighs> that is pretty cool. It sounded like a terribly written version of the book. <laughs> so. Oh, oh just wait till you hear the song. Anyway. That's it. That's perfume. Throwback. Oh, how do we manage to talk for that long? Our last episode was really long, and basically all we did was talk about a book. Our last episode actually was under an hour. Oh, was it two episodes ago? One- yeah, it was two episodes yeah. ago that we were talking for like an hour and a half about a book. I don't know. I, I think we just love hearing ourselves like, talk. Holy crap. <laughs> uh, um, well, it's good because we have nothing else to talk about this week. 
Yeah, I can't wait. I wish we had something to say about the This Is Horror Awards, but uh, we're, we're in that soon loop right now where we don't know yet. I anything. do believe that by the next time we record, we should have some results. I fucking hope so, man. I am on the edge of my seat for that. But um, until then, what do we got coming up next, sir? Next week, we are going to be interluding. And I know it seems like we just interluded, but it was three books ago. And I have a really rough schedule at work this week. So I'm going to try. <laughs> this week, my goal is to finish the two half books that I started, like in between books for the podcast. So I'm going to try that. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about those. Would you Would you like to know what those are? I'm dying to hear what those are. All right, I'll have to pull it up on my Kindle because I don't fucking remember. While you're looking, can I tell you what we're missing right now? Uh, much like a holiday, tonight is the airing of the Saturday Night Live 40th Anniversary Special, which is a three-hour um, event that um, has like dozens of, of the former cast members that came back to do stuff, so... We're missing the live airing of that. Just want to let you know. I'm crushed. You sound like it. The only thing I've ever liked on Saturday Night Live was Celebrity Jeopardy. I was watching some of those before. God (laughs) damn it, those are fucking hilarious. (laughs) That's the sound your mother made last night. (laughs) I, uh, I did start reading at your suggestion by Blood We Live. Nice. Um, so I may try to finish that. I'm probably only about 30% into that. And I'm probably like 60% into The Thief by Fuminari Nakamura, um, which is okay. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I'm at 60% because I swear it's like 100 pages. Like it's it's super, super ridiculously short. And somehow I managed to to not finish that. But um, so yeah, I may read those this week. I probably won't have much to say about them. I think that. Uh I might be doing some reading. I'm not sure what right now. There's a couple things on my list that I need to get to, like um, that uh, collection of stories by John F.D. Taff that um, Mallerman talked about, and there's some other ones that I want to get to. So I might have a little bit to bring to the table as well. We'll see. Um, yeah, that would be that would be cool. It's a bummer that we're not reading collections this year. <laughs> Well, you know what? We're, it's a resolution, so we have to at least get through. Well, we're through January, so that's when pretty much everybody abandons <laughs> their resolutions. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. Um, so we'll be back next week. Until then, um, head over to patreon.com slash book. Throw us some of your hard-earned money. Catch a short story written and performed by Rob Olson, which just went live yesterday. With, yeah, believe. within Is the last part? 12 hours, yeah. Yep, so um, so there's that. There's a short story read by me, and all of this is available to you for the low, low price of just $1 a month. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash booked. Help fund future adventures for the booked podcast. That's right, and until next week, I am Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Stedden. Keep reading 